Hello and welcome. You're listening to Talkville 21, the podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the very first edition of Talkville 21, the podcast. I'm Shane McLaurin, one of the editors over at Tokyo 21, and I'll be your host. For our first episode, we have Jacob Hamburger co-hosting. Hi, Jake. And hi, everybody. I'm uh, Jacob Hamburger. I'm a co-editor of the Tokyo 21 blog, uh, and uh, I'm excited to finally be doing the, this blog in podcast form and to be here with Shane and Art. So um, I think I'll, before we get into this, I'm just going to talk a little bit about Tokyo 21, because uh, I imagine many of you listening to this might have probably come across it because you follow the blog or or seen it, but it gives us a little chance just now that we're here actually talking to you to talk about what what we do and what we're hoping to do. So we started Tokyo 21 or about three years ago now at this point, it, and it was collaboration between uh, at, at the American University uh, of Paris and a partnership with Tocqueville Review, which it's a bilingual journal dedicated to Tocqueville's thought, but also really an expansive and interdisciplinary uh, approach to studying and understanding uh, democracy. So Tocqueville 21, the, the idea of the blog has always been to carry that, that mission forward, but with a focus on, on the contemporary world, the contemporary events. So that's 21, it's Tocqueville and democracy in the, in the 21st century. I and my longtime co-editor, Danielle Charette, have now been joined by a, n- a number of new blog editors. We're excited to also have this podcast be a part of the blog's project. So I'll let Shane uh, introduce Art a little bit more and then also talk a little bit more about where we're seeing this podcast going from here on out before we get into the discussion with Art. Thanks, Jake. The objective of the podcast is to continue the work that Jake and Danielle began with the blog, exploring issues of comparative democracy, or as Jake said, really anything that falls under the heading of democracy often uh, with a historical perspective, and examining the evolution of these topics in France, in the United States, and everywhere, really. Every episode, we'll be speaking with experts on a broad range of topics, with uh, always an eye on that underlying question of democracy in the modern world. I personally have a background in history and international relations, and it's pretty likely that both of these fields will feature prominently, but I'm also looking forward to venturing beyond them and exploring new horizons with you. And of course... Other members of the Tocqueville 21 team over at the blog will be joining us occasionally to bring a fresh perspective and spice things up a bit. So without further ado, let's get right to it and introduce our first guest. Arthur Goldhammer, beyond being a force behind the blog, is a noted translator and political commentator based out of Harvard University's Center for European Studies. His most recent translations have garnered wide acclaim with his translation of Thomas Piketty's Capital in the 21st Century hitting the New York Times bestseller list. All right, so Art Goldhammer, welcome to the first ever Tocqueville 21 podcast. It's great to have you on. Glad to be here. We are very excited to have Art for this, this first podcast episode. And uh, we're going to be talking about uh, the upcoming French presidential elections and also, obviously, the, the regional elections that just happened. Um, so I think, Art, you know, uh, what we were thinking to start with before we kind of get into the details of both of these elections is to kind of st- take a little bit of a step back and ask you, kind of your thoughts about how American media has perceived French politics, I guess, you know, since, since the Macron years have began, and how you think that perception has changed, what it's got right, what it's got wrong, and then how you think maybe this perception here, here in the United States might be different uh, with this next uh, coming round of elections. Well, it's always difficult for me to answer questions about how the American media perceive French politics, because I think Largely, the American media ignore French politics. That's uh, part of the reason why I got into 
uh, writing my own blog about French politics because I thought the uh, the subject was uh, uh, too woefully neglected uh, by the American media. But to be fair, I think uh, to the extent that there is coverage, the uh, American media have uh, largely greed, welcomed Macron's uh, election uh, as a, a step in the right direction for France. He uh, was someone who emphasized uh, the need to take a, a more entrepreneurial, uh, to bring a more entrepreneurial spirit into uh, into France, and uh, he derived that entrepreneurial spirit from his observations of the United States. So the American media took that as approval of uh, the way things were going in America and uh, are always happy when France uh, uh, indicates approval of the United States. Now, more recently, uh, French attitudes have taken a darker turn and Macron has uh, echoed that darker turn, insinuating that France has suffered from the importation of uh, American ideas of multiculturalism and uh, that uh, turn has been greeted uh, uh, more dimly by uh, the United States media. So uh, I think uh, to put it in a nutshell, uh, that's been the transformation of American attitudes from uh, initial approval of Macron to uh, current questioning about the direction that he's taking as he seems to move farther to the right, take a more authoritarian view, a harsher view toward uh, minorities in France. Yeah, it's you know this this topic of um, multiculturalism and the supposed you know American importation. It's an interesting angle, and it's interesting that the American media has really responded to that French this French media discussion. Do you, uh, I guess it's it's a question of how much that really maps onto following the the kind of the French political cycle. Do you see that as you know at least to the extent that Americans are viewing this debate in France about multiculturalism and to the extent that you know. French multiculturalists are, are importing American ideas in, in, in taking that position. Do you, is this, do you see this as being a fact, you know, um, related to actual on the ground French politics or more of kind of an American navel gazing of look, you know, oh, look, you know, on the other side of the Atlantic here, people are interested in our ideas, you know, so to speak. You know, do you see this as being like having a real political significance in the, in the French context? Well, it's such a confused debate. Uh, many of the uh, voices in American uh, multicultural theory uh, that the French are accusing of uh, being American are in fact derived from French theoretical sources initially. So the debate is so confused and so divorced from political realities in France. And even French commentary on multiculturalism, I think is divorced from political realities in France that uh, it's almost impossible to make any uh, coherent sense of it. Do you think that's one of the reasons behind uh, some of the confusion that we're seeing in terms of the entire political spectrum, the difficulty for the, for the right to create any coherent sort of uh, counter to Macron, likewise to the left? Yes, I, I would agree with that. Uh, I think uh, Macron is struggling to uh, find a way to uh, answer the challenge of Le Pen without seeming to uh, take a, a hyper-authoritarian, uh, frankly, xenophobic attitude, uh, which would alienate even further voters on the left. I mean, he, he wants to run in the center, so he has to preserve support in the center. Uh, and he's all over there for uh, the uh, center-left voters who supported him in large numbers in 2017 could easily be alienated if he comes to seem like a French version of Donald Trump. 
So he's trying to uh, walk a fine line uh, between those uh, extremes. So, you know, now that we've kind of gotten back to the, you know, the, the kind of a little bit more of the horse race issues of the, the French electoral cycle, I mean, maybe we can talk a little bit about the regional elections, or at least the first round that just happened uh, in the last couple of days. The, the main headline, uh, as I understand it, is that this was a relative success for the two more established parties, the, certainly the Républicain, and the, but also to some extent the, so, the socialists. Art, I'm, I'm curious if you think that this is more of a sign that voters are want something, you know, like Shane mentioned a second ago, are, are, are no longer thinking that these old parties are, are, are incoherent as they were maybe a couple of years ago, or if that's maybe more of just a, a fluke with, you know, with especially low turnout election uh, on the way to, you know, the, the Macron-Le Pen runoff that, that we're most likely to see, uh, that at least everyone's beliefs are most likely to see. You know, how do you, you know, in broad strokes, how are you interpreting kind of these initial results uh, at the regional level? Uh, well, before I address your question, I'll quibble a little with your headline. I think the major headline is the uh, unprecedented rate of abstention. Most of the French media certainly uh, uh, emphasize that. So that, of course, is uh, can be interpreted in various ways. On the one hand, uh, France is just emerging from lockdown, so people had other things to do with a pleasant weekend in the summer uh, than to think about politics. Uh, I think also that uh, the French have found uh, the regions uh, hard to warm up to. The regions in their current form are only five years old. They're the result of uh, the latest attempt to uh, add a modicum of decentralization to France's heavily centralized administrative arrangement. Uh, the boundaries of the regions were drawn by politicians in faraway Paris without much uh, attention to uh, local patterns of uh, uh, economic relationships and uh, relations of towns to one another. Uh, the reform has resulted in uh, the closing of uh, local clinics and courthouses and tax collection offices and other administrative offices in smaller towns and a kind of uh, re-centralization in regional capitals. So the attempt to decentralize in a way made government less accessible to people in more uh, remote areas. For that reason, uh, the reform is not understood and the exact responsibilities of the regions are not well understood. So the regional elections were a bit confusing. So that's the first thing that we have to say. The second is that it's, uh, although the media presented this regional election as a warm-up for the coming presidential election, uh, it was hard for voters to interpret in those terms because uh, uh, the parties formed alliances among themselves in certain regions uh, with the express purpose of keeping Le Pen from taking power. So for example, in uh, Paca, uh, Provence-Alpes-Côte d'Azur, the uh, <clears throat> uh, Republicans, the Republican leader, uh, Renaud Moustelier, formed an alliance with the Macron's party, En Marche, uh, for that purpose of blocking Le Pen. Uh, and then he was immediately repudiated by Christian Jacob, the leader of uh, the Republican Party, who did not want to alienate potential Le Pen voters who might be uh, open to the enticement of coming back to the Republicans. So uh, voters were confused about what the, the stakes really were, I think. Now, uh, it's true that uh, Le Pen was expected to do uh, very well. She had done well in regional, the last regional elections in 2015, 
which selected the uh, regional councils that would uh, uh, preside over the uh, new reformed regions. And uh, in fact, uh, as it turned out, she did less well than she did in, 20, in 2015. Uh, at that time, she took uh, about 28% of the vote. This year, it was only 20%. Uh, she was expected, to, uh, her, her uh, uh, proxy, uh, Thierry Mariani, who's a, a turncoat from the Republicans, led the Rassemblement National in PACA. He was expected to get 41% of the vote and in the event got only 36. He is slightly in the lead uh, in the first round, about three or 4% ahead of the uh, Republican uh, en marche uh, alliance, but still much less, uh, 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 a, a much uh, uh, poorer result than had been anticipated. The same is true in uh, Eau de France, where uh, Sebastien Chenu, uh, yet another turncoat from the Republicans running for the uh, RN, did much less well than anticipated against uh, Xavier Bertrand. So uh, that brings me to your question. Uh, does that mean that the traditional parties are in a better position to challenge Macron? And the answer is yes, if we're talking about uh, the Republicans. So actually, uh, Xavier Bertrand is not quite a Republican. He was a Republican, but he uh, left the party unhappy with the direction that it took after the uh, 2017 elections. So he's uh, running as an independent, but he's an announced presidential candidate, and he occupies that same center-right space uh, that uh, Macron and the Republicans are, are competing for. Uh, his showing in uh, Eau de France puts him in a very strong position, I think, to challenge Macron as uh, the candidate who will become the eventual second-round survivor uh, against Le Pen. And it's even conceivable that uh, the first two finishers would be uh, someone like Bertrand and Macron if uh, Le Pen fades. The second point I would make, I don't want to go on too long, I've been talking quite a while now, but the, one quick point is that Le Pen's uh, disappointing performance has led for the first time to open criticism from within her own ranks. So uh, uh, RN politicians like Gilbert Collard and uh, uh, Robert Ménard uh, are saying that perhaps uh, Le Pen took her policy of uh, dehumanization too far. She's made the uh, RN too respectable and therefore alienated its hardcore of xenophobes and racists. Uh, and uh, therefore uh, they uh, think that uh, perhaps the party should be taking a different direction. So uh, Le Pen is on the back foot at this moment. She could make a comeback next Sunday if, uh, in fact, the Mariani uh, list wins in PACA. But that remains to be seen. It's interesting, um, because everything you've said in that particular context seems to suggest that uh, the electorate hasn't moved all that much since 2017. It's still, rather, the weight, uh, the political weight in, in France is still largely center-right. In fact, what you discussed just now seems to suggest that the most persuasive answer to Macron might be another uh, independent center-right up-and-coming candidate from out of nowhere. Do you think that the electorate has, uh, has shifted significantly in the, past, uh, in the past few years? Yeah, that, uh, it's not really my view that the uh, electorate has not shifted. Now, uh, first of all, we have to be cautious about interpreting the results of last Sunday's election. Uh, because uh, of the large uh, abstention rate. 
it's likely that uh, a disproportionate number of uh, the abstainers were Le Pen supporters. Uh, exit polls suggest that that's true. Uh, second, because of the uh, confusion of issues, this being a regional election, as I, I just said, it's hard to read this in any direct way as reflecting the shift of uh, sentiment in the electorate since 2017. Now, I do believe that the electorate has changed, uh, that Ma Macron enjoyed strong support from the center-left electorate in 2017, and he's lost, he's alienated almost entirely that uh, uh, part of his uh, base, uh, if you can call it his base, since he never made an attempt to uh, really establish a, a party implanted with local roots. So I think Macron is substantially weaker than he was in 2017 when he was uh, a new face, someone who uh, was relatively unknown to the public, who appealed on the basis of his youth and vigor uh, more than uh, on the basis of his policies. He abandoned uh, the government of Hollande, in which he had been a major figure and indeed had been responsible for the economic policies that had made Hollande so un unpopular, and yet those policies were not held against him. So uh, uh, I think Macron is weak and vulnerable, and that's why uh, uh, Jake's question is pertinent, uh, that the traditional parties, which uh, Macron had been seen to have uh, shattered, are in a stronger position than they uh, than one might have thought they were because of Macron's weakness. Now, I'm not sure Jake's suggestion that the socialists have made as much of a comeback as the Republicans can withstand scrutiny. It's true that they did fairly well in uh, several regions, uh, better than expected. But because of the uh, impossibility of forming a coalition on the left, uh, or what seems to me at this point, the impossibility of such a coalition, I don't think the left is uh, really going to provide a viable challenger. That's why I'm looking to the center-right. And it's not, not because I think that the, uh, the French electorate is really concentrated in that space, but it's where uh, I think that there is a, a ceiling for the uh, far-right vote. But in order to defeat Le Pen, you have to form a coalition that is acceptable to a majority of voters. And I think the only cold, the only space in which I see a, a leader emerging who can form such a coalition is uh, in the center right. That is, uh, if it's not Xavier Bertrand, it's likely to be someone like uh, Valérie Pécresse or uh, perhaps even Edouard Philippe, uh, the former prime minister, who is the most popular politician in France at this moment, if you believe the approval rating polls. His approval rating is 50% compared to Macron's 40, and Macron is up to 40 after having fallen to 20. Uh, Philippe never fell that low. Uh, yet a, another possibility, Laurent Vauquier, who used to be the leader of the Republicans, who uh, resigned in disgrace after losing badly in the European elections, but who emerged uh, with 44% of the vote in his region of uh, uh, Auvergne, Rhône-Alpes Auvergne, in Sunday's election. So uh, he too could uh, emerge as a challenger. Yeah, all right. I certainly didn't want to overstate the case for the socialists having a more viable path now after these regional elections. It looked to me that uh, Given, the, especially given the low turnout, but that you know, just as the established part, one of the two established parties in the system prior to the last regional elections in place prior to Macron, the socialists did you know reap some of the benefit of this relatively low turnout. But I, you know, maybe let's talk a little bit more about the the Parti Socialiste 
you know, obviously, I think I, I certainly I, I share a bit of uh, your skepticism about a real strong left candidacy, given just kind of the distribution of political forces in France right now. But it is worth, I think, thinking a little bit about the different options, you know, on, on the, the center left. Uh, obviously, you've got Mélenchon as a candidate uh, in his France Insoumise party further to the left than the socialists. And there's the <coughs> Greens attendant as well. But but. Uh, you know the the socialists. I think Anne Hidalgo is is uh, is often considered one of the top contenders within the PS to for for the for that nomination. I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on whether you think a candidacy like that has has some viability. You know, just given all the uncertainty and the potential for maybe surprises and shocks and upsets that we know happens in French politics. What chances do you think a politician like Hidalgo might have? But also, you know, um, what a, ca- a candidacy maybe on the center left, what kind of a platform they could put together, what kind of coalition might be conceivable? Okay, well, I think you're right that Hidalgo is uh, the almost certain uh, candidate for the Socialist Party. Uh, the problem for the Socialists is that the only conceivable alliance they can make is with the Greens, and the Green uh, leader, Yannick Jadot, see, sees himself as the leader of the left coalition rather than the Socialist candidate. So uh, the first uh, obstacle to overcome would be to uh, settle the order of precedence between the Greens and the Socialists. The problem is that even if the Greens and the Socialists formed an alliance, Mélenchon, as you suggest, uh, still commands 10 to 12 to maybe 15 percent of the left-wing vote. So a left-wing candidacy is not really viable without an alliance with Mélenchon, but Mélenchon's whole party is premised on the idea that the socialists are corrupt and completely unreliable as uh, coalition partners. So to form uh, an alliance between the socialists and uh, France Insoumise is going to call into question the sincerity of one or the other of the parties of that coalition. That's already happened in Ile de France, where in the regional elections, uh, the France Insoumise candidate, uh, Clément Autain, uh, agreed to join a coalition with the Greens and the Socialists and was immediately denounced as betraying the uh, core values of the uh, France Insoumise party. So uh, it's really hard to see how, how that can work out. What you see in Germany happening, where the Greens are emerging as a, a, a viable political force, but one that may have to rule in coalition with the right rather than the left, that doesn't seem to be happening at all in France. And partially because the Greens in France, or the Greens in Germany, are uh, already situated somewhat further to the right than the Greens in, already further to the right than the Greens in France. And so the Greens in France are more naturally suited to this kind of speculation about a left coalition, whereas maybe in Germany, that's not necessarily the, where the chips fall. That, that's true. But the Greens in Germany have uh, shifted precisely for electoral reason. They started out as a, uh, a radical party, a non-governmental party, and uh, they've uh, changed their philosophy, philosophy considerably. And uh, with that change in philosophy has come a strengthening of their electoral position. We may see that happening in uh, France as well. Uh, Jadot seems to be moving in that direction, but there's strong opposition to that move within his own party. So maybe we can also, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about, as we're thinking, as we're moving towards the presidential election next year, how the pandemic has changed the calculus. It's... To me, it struck me kind of as a paradox, because on the one hand, you'd think that if there's any type of event that would that could play against Macron as the kind of Republican figure against standing in the face, you know, standing 
in between you know, Republicanism and the far right, you think that an event like this could help undermine that by showing you know, the government's, in, where the government is not, maybe not as competent as it could be, generally putting people in a worse position than they might have been back in 2017. But at the same time, Macron's popularity seems to have risen over the course of the pandemic. And you know, like many incumbent leaders, he's, he, he's, he's managed to hold on to some goodwill just as, as an incumbent that's rode through the storm. I'm interested, Art, just where, where you think, you know, as France is also getting more, more vaccination coverage and life is returning to some sort of normal, where, where do you think that's going to leave um, Macron politically? Uh, to be honest, France's performance uh, in the COVID crisis has been kind of a puzzle to me. France had the most vaunted medical system in the world. It was generally considered to have the best medical system. Uh, it, uh, its uh, social insurance was uh, far and away the model for many other countries. And yet its initial performance was uh, extremely bad. Its uh, hospitals were overwhelmed. The government's uh, ability to supply masks and uh, stake out a clear policy in meeting the crisis was uh, uh, lacking in the beginning. Germany seemed to be doing far better. And there were many comparisons in the French media between Germany's apparently very good performance and France's poor performance. It's true that later on, the Germany's performance declined and France's seemed to improve. So uh, it's not clear to me what judgments were drawn by people in France about the overall performance of their government. In the beginning, there was considerable disappointment, but by the end, as you suggest, it seemed that France held up pretty well. And Macron's popularity has improved. I'm not sure that that had much to do with COVID. It may simply have to do with the fact that as uh, Le Pen's candidacy seemed to gain in credibility and strength, people naturally turned to Macron as uh, the person most likely to be able to stop her. I'm, uh, I'm still confused about uh, exactly what uh, determined uh, France's fate in the, in the COVID crisis. In part, uh, I think it was uh, the, the poor performance in the beginning was simply due to bad luck. France was struck earlier and had less time to prepare than some other countries. I think we've seen all over the world that type of perform, you know, the way in which politicians respond to this crisis has not really had had the most direct effect on the, on their popularity or the perceived, you know, their their the perception of how effective they are. So even when Macron comes out with frankly nonsensical policies like imposing a, a nine o'clock curfew to fight COVID, I see something like that and I think that's clearly going to just inconvenience people and make it seem like he doesn't know what he's doing, but. Uh, I think people, I think pe all over the world, people respond to this type, these types of decisions in, in different ways. But um, one other aspect of COVID that's, I think, worth mentioning is that it kind of came at a moment where prior to COVID in France, the, the country was in the middle of very intense social conflict between the, the, the pension reform debate, the still lingering effects of the Gilets Jaunes movement. And now it's a bit unclear where all of this highly highly mobilized, if, but while also maybe poorly organized resistance has, it's not clear where all this has gone. So I'm interested to just hear where, uh, what you think we can expect from these corners of, Fr of, of French politics, kind of the kind of grassroots uh, resistance to Macron. Yeah, in, in a sense, I think uh, the COVID crisis gave Macron a reprieve from the uh, final judgment on his uh, attempt to reform France. 
the pension reform uh, was already running into trouble. He had suffered severe setback as a result of the Gilets Jaunes uprising. As a result of COVID, pension reform was put on hold and it was, it was already reeling. Macron had been forced to reconsider what the reform was going to be. And it looked like the whole policy was going to be reconsidered from the ground up. And then COVID came and uh, no one was asking questions about whether pension reform anymore. It also delayed any final judgment on you know, what uh, Macron's balance sheet really is. If there had been no COVID, one might have looked at the series of reforms uh, from the repeal of the wealth tax to various changes in the tax system to subsidies for uh, businesses and uh, changes in the uh, pension regime and asked what difference had that really made to the French economy? Had, had these uh, structural reforms that Macron had touted at the beginning as the solution to all of France's problems, had these really achieved the desired result? The answer could likely have been no, but COVID uh, simply delayed judgment. There were so many changes to the economy, some, the shock to the economy was so great that uh, it seems no longer fair to pose that question. Did the reforms achieve or at least start France in the direction of achieving uh, the results that Macron had promised? Uh, so instead, people are evaluating Macron on the likelihood that he is the strongest candidate to stop Le Pen. I think uh, the Le Pen issue is going to be the only issue uh, in the election rather than did Macron succeed or fail. And uh, in, in that sense, uh, he got a, a reprieve uh, uh, as a result of COVID. There is one other question I wanted to ask specifically about this distinction between Le Pen and Macron. There's an impression that Macron has sort of tacked to the right as far as possible in order to soak up as much of the support for the RN. What exactly do you view as the core distinguishing features between Macron and Le Pen at this point, given the, uh, the mellowing of the RN? Uh, well, I think, uh, first of all, I have to say that Macron uh, is responding to the uh, rather substantial majority uh, in France in favor of uh, a more aggressive policy toward Islamism. Like it or not, the French people uh, have been dismayed by the uh, continuing uh, atrocities, the most notorious of which was the uh, uh, murder of uh, Samuel Paty. And uh, because of that, there's been substantial uh, support for what can only be uh, called a crackdown on uh, the practice of the Islamic religion in France. Now, uh, I, uh, I don't like that, but I think it was impossible for Macron to uh, avoid. Uh, I think some of his ministers uh, have gone even farther than Macron himself. Uh, Gérald Darmanin, the interior minister, and uh, uh, Jean-Michel Blanquer, the minister of education, have both uh, taken even more aggressive stances than Macron himself. What remains to answer directly your question, what is the uh, chief distinction between uh, Le Pen and Macron. I think, first of all, Le Pen, for all her attempts to de-demonize her party, still bears the stigmata of the party that her father created. It's a party that uh, comes out of the tradition of the French far right of collaboration with the Nazis in World War II, of uh, opposition based on race rather than policy uh, to immigration. Uh, and Macron stands for none of those things. Macron also stands for strong ties with Europe, uh, with the European Union, 
Le Pen has modified her position on Europe, but it was anti-European in the last election. And I think that notion that she's not as committed to Europe uh, in spite of her protestations as Macron remains. Uh, she's also seen to suffer from a competence gap. Macron is uh, a technocrat, highly trained, well-versed in economics in the inter-round uh, debate in the 2017 election. He made mincemeat of her economic proposals. Uh, he just seemed uh, uh, far and away the uh, more articulate candidate, the uh, more in command of the uh, issues, better versed in uh, the arcana of economics and uh, of the machinery of French government. So in all those ways, he's distinguished from Le Pen. But I think when it comes down to the visceral judgment of voters, there are some who are with Le Pen because they share her, the sense that she is the one who is uh, most staunchly opposed to immigration and to the visible minorities in France. And uh, uh, on the other hand, there are uh, voters who are more in the center, uh, who see Macron as uh, upholding the, uh, the values with which they uh, identify. And those are anti-racist and, uh, and uh, not hostile to immigration. So it's a matter of perceived identity, among other things. Uh, yes, I, I think that's a fair way of putting it, perceived identity. Now, was what uh, either candidate believes in uh, uh, the heart of hearts, I, I, I can't say. But. Of course. Uh, we actually wanted to uh, to ask you a question that's sort of related to that. Specifically, what do you think the significance of um, of Europe will be in the upcoming presidential election? You sort of began to touch on this in your previous answer, but is there any, could, could you elaborate? Uh, well, uh, yes, uh, I, I think that Macron made Europe a, a central issue in his previous campaign, but it will be of far less significance in this campaign. His uh, overtures to Germany were largely rebuffed, to my great disappointment. Uh, Macron's strong position on Europe was one of the things that uh, I thought was most attractive in his candidacy in 2017. And I hope that his uh, enthusiasm for Europe would win the support of Angela Merkel. Uh, Merkel did uh, support him quite openly in the 2017 campaign, but once he became president, she seemed uh, reluctant to move in his direction to make any concessions that would have uh, been truly significant uh, on the European plane. That's because, in part, she was held back by uh, suspicion of Macron's motives in her own party, uh, long-standing suspicions in the CDU. Uh, and those remain. Her uh, successor, Armin Laschet, uh, shares her commitment to the EU and will probably make similar uh, uh, protestations of support uh, of Macron in the upcoming election. Uh, German elections in September will precede the French election, so uh, Laschet may well be chancellor by the time of the next French elections. Uh, but the significance of Europe, uh, I, I think uh, it didn't do that much for Macron domestically. Uh, he, his uh, strong support for Europe won him support among European elites and international elites, but really didn't make that much of a difference in, his, in the election. And I think it won't be as significant an issue this time around. In any case, the Europe issue has sort of been taken off the table by the fact that uh, Europe's response to COVID has been to pass a very generous package of support uh, which will uh, distribute European largesse uh, at a scale never before seen uh, among the European member states. And France will benefit uh, to some extent from uh, that largesse. So 
the issue has been resolved by COVID rather than by uh, policy agreement uh, among uh, European uh, governing institutions. Uh, such an agreement remains as uh, elusive as it was before Macron's election, uh, to my regret. That's, that's fascinating. Given that a couple months ago, the, the feeling uh, on the ground was that uh, there, there was a lot of resentment towards the European Union and the way that it was handling the, the COVID epidemic. There was the, uh, the fact that uh, the United Kingdom was doing comparatively better with its vaccine distribution. There was the uh, AstraZeneca debacle, where, which had the European Union um, lacking uh, a significant number of vaccines and unable to vaccinate its population. And then, of course, there was the perception that because uh, the, the, the vaccine rollout was supposed to be pan-European as opposed to national, there was a feeling that the French were being cheated uh, out of a lot of their uh, uh, their access to uh, to the vaccine. So you think this perception has shifted considerably? Um, yes, uh, in part. Uh, I think you're right, however, that Europe bore a large share of the blame for failures in COVID policy, not only the uh, areas you mentioned, but also uh, Europe insisted on negotiating on price in uh, obtaining vaccines from the manufacturer rather than saying we're willing to pay whatever it is we want to be given priority as the United States uh, was given priority. So the shortage of vaccine in Europe uh, was seen by the populations of many member states as the fault of the European Union. This was Ursula von der Leyen's uh, decision and not Macron's. So Europe's failure shifted attention away from uh, mistakes made by national governments and toward Europe. My argument is somewhat different. It, uh, it's not that Europe is being given a pass on its uh, failures in regard to COVID policy. It's rather that uh, Europe's response to the economic impact of COVID was to make available a, a, a substantial economic support package. And going forward, now that vaccines are becoming more available across Europe, uh, it's the economic impact of COVID that's uh, going to be the significant political issue uh, from here on out. Uh, and in that respect, Europe's decision has already been made. So the, the money available from uh, that uh, support package is just now flowing into European countries. Uh, and the, uh, uh, the benefits will begin to be felt uh, by European electorates uh, over the course of the next year. I think that the additional spending made possible would begin to reduce unemployment in countries like France, where the reduction of unemployment is one of the key indicators that persuades voters that uh, economic progress is being made. So I think if it, unemployment begins to fall, that will redound to the benefit of Macron, even though uh, it's a result of the European COVID support package. You know, this, are, this, this leads me to kind of one, I think maybe I think we're, we're getting close to an hour mark, so maybe this will kind of be our, our one kind of last big picture question to wrap things up. Um, but, you know, you mentioned the European uh, rescue package and, you know, combined with uh, the, the American kind of big uh, COVID policies that have happened over the last year, you know, there's at least this is, you know, in, in the way political, many political and economic commentators have started to talk about a, a transition towards a sort of new, both kind of domestic and also international consensus on, on certain types of policy, potentially moving away from the neoliberal framework that has been a, dom you know, a dominant policy framework you know, in, in the West and across the world for, for, for many decades. And there's this, this major shift in policy happening midway or sort of towards the end of Macron's presidency, right as we have this 
none as we have this rematch sort of coming up between Macron and Le Pen. I'm just, you know, kind of with this in mind, I want to just you know, go back and ask you to maybe think in, in broad strokes about, do you think that uh, France is prepared to elect someone like Marine Le Pen at a time when these types of big shifts are happening and in a way where Le Pen style of politics now in, in a way might even seem like because of the huge shifts that have happened almost kind of outdated in the kind of 2015, 2016 Trump and Brexit moment that has sort of passed. Um, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm simplifying and caricaturing a lot of, a lot of things kind of, but, but I just want to hear your, your reaction to that. You know, has, has, has the Le Pen moment passed or might France kind of find itself in kind of back in, in, in this style of right-wing populist politics of a few years ago at the moment, in the, mo in a moment when maybe other peer countries are moving in a different direction? Well, anything I say uh, uh, in speaking to this point will be purely speculative. Of course, that was that. That's the idea. We absolve you of any, of <laughs> and, any false predictions. Uh, and my own feelings on this point shift back and forth from moment to moment. There uh, was a time not so very long ago, a few months ago, I wrote an article for Persuasion, which they chose to entitle "President Le Pen?" Question mark. I thought that Le Pen's uh, strength was increasing. I thought that the French were becoming more receptive. Uh, in part because of the uh, uh, shifts in uh, Macron's own policies toward the right that Shane pointed out earlier, uh, the crackdown on Islam uh, seemed to me ominous and playing into Le Pen's hands. More recently, uh, I think perhaps uh, that perception of uh, increased Le Pen's strength was overdrawn. Sunday's election has changed my thinking on that score. The fact that she did less well than 2015 suggests that perhaps the French have looked at the impact of Trump in the United States, uh, not just uh, Trump's failure as a president, but also the, uh, the forces that he unleashed, uh, which were uh, vi vividly uh, uh, demonstrated on January 6th with the insurrection in the US Capitol. France looked at that and said, this is not what we really want uh, here at home. Uh, there's been talk in France uh, about civil war. There was a, a statement by a, a bunch of retired generals saying that uh, they were worried about the uh, loss of Republican control in certain territories of France, by which they meant the suburbs, the big cities where minorities are, uh, are overrepresented. Uh, and that was taken as a almost a declaration that the far right was preparing a military coup in France. This may have sobered up some voters. I don't know. I think uh, to judge on the basis of Sunday's election is certainly premature to say that the Le Pen moment has passed. Uh, but one can hope that it has passed. Uh, uh, and and that, that is my hope. But still, it's a long time between now and the election next year. And anything could happen. The uh, uh, attack on Samuel Paty, which I mentioned earlier, I think had a tremendous impact on French public opinion. And if we were to see another atrocity of that sort, or uh, even worse, a series of such atrocities, I think you could uh, rapidly see a shift uh, back in the direction of Le Pen. Uh, there's also the possibility of other far-right candidates emerging. If Le Pen is seen as having gone soft uh, because of the attempt to de-demonize her party, and someone like Eric Zemmour, 
who is sounding more and more like a, a candidate every day, uh, emerges on the right. Uh, he has a totally different base of support from Le Pen's. He's uh, not associated with the traditional liabilities of her father's party, uh, and he's built up his base through the media. So he could become a dangerous uh, uh, potential representative of the far right. So I'm not at all excluding the uh, possibility of, uh, of uh, a far right candidate, even though I think uh, uh, we see more support, uh, uh, more hope uh, in the center of the political spectrum than uh, we might have seen a few months ago. All right, Art. Well, we won't make we won't force you into any more uh, unchecked speculation today. Uh, I think this, this this as you know as we mentioned before, French politics is always full of surprises, and I think you just gave a great sense of the types of surprises we might uh, potentially see. But obviously, surprises are surprises. So thanks thanks so much for being our first guest on the Tocqueville Twenty One podcast. My pleasure. I suspect uh, I suspect it won't be the last time. And, um, you know, uh, Shane, I think we're going to have to figure out how to do show notes uh, and things like that for the podcast. Uh, but I guess for now, we can say for Arts Writing, uh, uh, people, if you're listening to this, you can find Arts Writing at Tocqueville21.com on, on the blog, um, including, I believe, Art, uh, things like your persuasion piece. Uh, you also um, linked to that in some, of, in some of your posts, your past posts of the last couple of weeks. Right. And uh, on uh, the specific uh, subject of Sunday's election, I have a, an ish, uh, a new article in The Guardian that appeared today, and it's uh, uh, linked on the blog. Uh, wonderful. So uh, that, that's where you can find arts writing, as well as uh, plenty of other uh, commentary on France, France, America, democracy around the world uh, on Total 21. So uh, thanks a lot, Art, and uh, we'll see you next time. Okay. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Talkville 21 podcast, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. For more information, please visit our website, talkville21.com. That's T-O-C-Q-U-E-V-I-L-L-E-2-1.com, and stay tuned for the next episode. We would like to credit Kevin McLeod for his rendition of Tchaikovsky's Waltz Number no. 9, Opus 40, for our intro and outro music. This piece is licensed under Creative Commons and can be found at incompetech.com.